I want to I dive right in. Uh, I'm really excited about this message. It's been one that's sort of percolating in me for a couple of weeks. And so um, as we're traveling along in this uh, series on Mark, we're, I don't know, we're like eight weeks into it, but we decided to kind of take a, a little bit of a, uh, a different approach in that we're taking each of the seven days, the last days of Jesus's life, and we're focusing a chapter on each one of those days and today we're going to be, as Jesus enters into the city of Jerusalem and starts interacting and engaging with the religious leaders in the city, we're going to hear what he has to say as they kind of like try to trip him up. It's going to be, a, I, I really feel like today, uh, f- for me, it's one of those messages that as I'm speaking it, I'm also putting myself out there with you too and, and really like reflecting back on what it means to me in terms of response. So I want to pray and just let's, let's dive right in. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open up your word today and we look at what you have to say about on this topic of love, that uh, we would let your, um, that your word would breathe out. Um, it's inspired in and of itself. And Lord, I pray that you would take my words and that they would honor you, uh, that they would land on each ear and heart uh, in, in, a, in an amazing way, as only you can do through your Holy Spirit, Jesus. Amen. So uh, somebody once said, don't take life too serious. You'll never get out of it alive. I, there's some irony to that. I really like that saying. Have you ever met anybody that takes life just a little too seriously? Maybe they take their religion just just a little bit too seriously. Like sometimes you're kind of like, you are really into your religion, and, and nothing, nothing like showcases that better than social media. It's one of those things, it's kind of like that awkward entertainment. Sometimes you have that like friend that'll always post stuff. Well, I ran across something to illustrate not too long ago, ran across this post. Uh, so this is, this is somebody that takes their religion really seriously. This, is, uh, this person is not in this room, I don't think. Um, this bag of shrimp was supposed to have between 51 and 60 shrimp in it. We never counted, it just kept... Uh, kept on putting them on the skewer, and when we were done, we counted, and there was 121 shrimp, 19 skewers of six, one skewer of seven, and you know that's a biblical number, right? Um, Accident or miracle, God doubled our food. That's amazing, you know? I'm pretty sure this person was being serious. So that that is... uh, that's somebody taking religion very, very seriously. And also, by the way, if uh, you've a reminder, if you're new here to Canyon Creek, that uh, that's also true, that whatever you post on Facebook can be used just as a disclaimer. I get a lot of material from you guys sometimes, but I don't use it all. Um, so <laughs> it, takes a, it takes a second to sink in, doesn't it? Okay, well, so today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be traveling with Jesus as he's coming into Jerusalem, and what you have to keep in mind is that Jerusalem is a city full of people that take their religion very, very seriously. In fact, even to this day, you know, Jerusalem is a very serious place with very religious people, and in the uh, old city of Jerusalem, it's divided up into four quarters. You have an Armenian quarter, Christian, and a Jewish quarter, a Muslim quarter, and in each one of those, there's their, their, their own customs and cultures and expectations. And so when you travel from one part of the city to the other, you really have to respect and understand kind of where you're at. It's not a, it's not a homogenous culture. It's very heterogeneous. And so, uh, so you have to kind of keep in mind that even today, you know, religion is a very serious topic in Jerusalem. But, but in Jesus' estates, it really was there too. Of course, it was primarily Jewish, but you had all of these different opinions on sides, different sides of the matters. For example, you had the Pharisees, 
Do they believe that there was life after death? The Sadducees did not. They believed that once you died, it was dust, and that's it. That's why they were sad, you see? Bad joke, really bad. <laughs> and then there were the scribes. The scribes were in charge of writing down and copying God's word, but also for interpreting the word of God. The scribes were um, not necessarily didn't belong to one sect or the other, uh, but their job was to teach and to understand Scripture. And uh, so we'll get into the scribes in just a second. There were Zionists, there were Tolerists, there were all kinds of people in Jerusalem. So there were many discussions and many debates, and so it was a healthy kind of open situation. Some were not too friendly where, you know, you would try to trap somebody, and then if they fell on the wrong side, you know, you could kind of pin, pinhole them, and if they, you know, were your religious enemies, you know, that was, you could kind of create a list of people that, you know, you were not to talk to. They were unclean or on the other side. And so it was contentious, but it was also very, very much a place for debate. And today we're in Mark chapter 12, and the Sadducees are debating with Jesus. And as, as they were doing this, a scribe leans in, then he starts listening to this conversation, and he lends an ear in, and he's, okay, this is interesting what Jesus is saying. And he, he's captivated uh, by that, but he decides to put Jesus to the test. And uh, what I, I kind of, when I first read this, because, I, you know, we know the end of the story, and we kind of get where Jesus is coming from now, so it feels like this is sort of a softball question, kind of like, you know, a reporter asking a political candidate, so what are you going to do to change the world with your amazing abilities, you know? And, and so it kind of feels like that, but it's not. Uh, let's, let's look at it in Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. And so here's the scribe. One of the scribes came up. And heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, when Jesus is answering the question of what's the most important commandment, I don't know, I sort of would, because I'm, I'm a Christ follower, like, kind of listen, right? Just whatever Jesus is saying, maybe this next thing that he responds is, is important. And what he says is, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that comes out of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And if you know uh, a little bit about Jewish culture, you'll know that this is a very important part of their scripture, their, the, the Torah. It's called the Shema. The Shema is very important. In fact, it, it's, it's maybe the most important prayer. It was, it's something that's a part of the morning ritual and of the evening ritual. The, the prayer is Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And it, it means, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one God. In fact, it's so important that, uh, that a, if possible, a Jewish person, when they're dying, would, would, their aim would be to make the Shema the very last thing. If they're a religious observant Jew, the very last thing that they ever say on planet Earth. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Shema. Very important. So Jesus gets that part right. Then he moves on from Deuteronomy 6.4 into 6.5, and he says, And you um, shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He's saying, listen, um, of, out of all of the commandments, these two, love the Lord your God and then love everyone else, are so important that if you don't get that right, all of the rest are a pale in comparison, a very, very distant three through 10,000 of the different commands. And the list of the commandments is, is incredible. I mean, they're everything in the 
Old Testament from like, do not eat the sinew of the thigh, you know, uh, Genesis 32, 33. So if you want to go out and get chicken wings, you might want to think about that one. Um, Exodus 13, 13, to break the neck of the donkey if the owner does not intend to redeem it, okay? Um, can kind of digest that one. I, uh, Exodus 16, 29, not to walk outside the city boundary on the Sabbath. So pretty much stay, stay in Moscow today, people. Um, and then Exodus 20 through uh, 2024, do not build the altar with stones hewn by metal. So, you know, just if you, stone's got to be hewn by another stone if it's going to be a part of the altar. Uh, Exodus 21.10 says not to withhold food, clothing, and sexual relations from your wife. Um, and all the, all the wives said, don't, don't say anything. <laughs> and Exodus 22.30 says not to eat meat of an animal that was mortally wounded, no roadkill. Um, Exodus 23.19, uh, not to eat mixtures of milk and meat cooked together. That's a cheeseburger, right? Don't, don't eat cheeseburgers. Don't eat pizza if you got cheese on it and there's meat touching the cheese. You can't do that. So that's, that these are all commandments in the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is that of all of these commandments, that nothing else, everything else sort of hinges on this one thing. Do you love God? Do you love people? Everything else pales in comparison to these, to these two major commandments. And if you're going to follow me, you need to understand that. Let's see how uh, the scribe reacts and then Jesus answers him in verse 32. The scribe said to him, yes, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. That's very important. And then there is no other beside him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength. And to love one's neighbor as oneself is more important than all of the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, all of our religious customs, all of the stuff that we do to reach up to God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. When Jesus had heard him, he said, uh, you've answered wisely. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And with that, no one else would answer any more of these questions from Jesus because they respected the scribe a lot. Apparently, he was not only a student of God's word, but he was highly respected. And the way that Jesus interacted with the scribe seemed to validate that Jesus knew what he was doing in terms of handling God's word. And so they left him alone. But here's the question, and, and where we're going to talk about, uh, what we're going to talk about today is, what is love? Not in the Hathaway, like, you know, uh, song, you know, thing. Remember, what is love? We're not going to do that. What we're going to talk about is what is love in the biblical sense? So uh, we, we have a problem with love. And, and I, I'm going to go into it because I really think that the problem with love is that we don't fully understand it from the perspective of what Scripture says. What does it mean to love? Uh, and, and there's a few problems with it. Number one, love has a definition problem. Love has a definition problem. You have poets, poets artists, uh, there's musicians, songwriters, movie producers, all, they're all making content that, that is trying to describe to us what love is and how to interact with people and love them. Uh, that's sort of the meat and potatoes of almost every form of artistic consumption that we have. And, uh, but in, in reality, there's a lot of noise and confusion that gets added to what love is. And so we end up with this problem in terms of a definition, and we have to go to Scripture to find out what it, what it is and what it's like. And so one thing that is clear is that love is something that we need. If you've ever been to a wedding, you've likely heard the next three verses of Scripture that I'm about to read to you, starting with 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love... I am a noisy gong 
or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So what he's saying is you can be wise, you can be wealthy, you can have all of the things that the world says is great, but if you don't have love, you're missing it fundamentally. You've got it completely wrong. But love has a definition problem. What is this love that we need so desperately? Let me uh, illustrate by giving you a list of some things that I love, and, and we can kind of dialogue about that. First of all, I love, I love a good cup of coffee in the morning. I can't function without it. I also love tea. Um, I, love, I love boats, especially when they're not mine, but I do love boats. I love a good Netflix documentary. Some of them are, are awesome. I love to sit and, and, and watch a good documentary. I, lo I love the smell of my mom's uh, cooking on Thanksgiving. Anybody like that? Like you walk in, mom's cooking, just smells amazing. I love that. I love lists. It's like why I'm doing now. I'm reading lists. I love lists. I love fonts. Anybody love fonts? Um, there's actually a documentary called Helvetica. It's back to the Netflix documentary. It's really good. It's a whole documentary on fonts. It's awesome. I love my friends. I, I love my friends. I love early mornings. Love getting up early. I love, I love the Seahawks, especially when they're winning. I love, I, I also, uh, by the way, don't hate me for this, but I love the Steelers. Just cause, I just do. I just grew up loving the Steelers. Um, I love roller coasters. I'll go up to Silverwood. I'll ride all of them all day long. I love roller coasters. I love Japanese food. Love sushi, like really good sushi. Uh, love it. Um, I love my child. See what I'm doing? I love old family photos, man. I love to go through them. I love to see, I love the time, the time hop thing where you're looking back 10 years ago. And I love that. I love old family photos. I love camping. One of my favorite things to do is get together with a family and go camping. I love, love camping. I love bookstores. You get me into a bookstore and I'm in my element. I love bookstores. I love books. I love my watch. My watch was uh, a gift to me about 20 years ago. It works great. I love my watch. It's one of the only things that I really, I really love. I love my wife. Finally got to that one, right? I love my wife. Love her. Love my wife more than anything. I love Costco pizza. I love, I love it when the late winter snow finally melts and I can see my lawn again. Anybody love that? Yes, I love, I love when the snow melts. I love sarcastic humor. Anybody love sarcastic humor? I do. I've learned not to do that so much from here because it's hard to interpret, so I, I try to stay away from it as much as I can. Um, but I, I love my Savior, Jesus. Whoa, you see what I'm saying? Like, it's you love, you love Costco pizza, you love your wife, you love Netflix documentaries, you love your son, you love pizza, you love your Savior. And, and the question is, how can you define love? It seems like there's a definition problem of it. And so there was an interesting uh, kind of like man on the street interviews thing, and I found it fascinating too. I wanted to just read to you. This is verbatim from the question, can you define love? And so here's some American answers, literally people on the street trying to answer the question, can you define love? <coughs> and again, keeping in mind that that's the meat and potatoes of almost all of the media content that we see. Here's one. Love is, can you define love? Yes. Love is falling for the person's personality and everything else, just looking beyond perfect in your eyes no matter what. 
Uh, next person said, love is giving up everyone, anything and everything to be with a person, choosing them over anyone else in a heartbeat. That's love. Uh, another person said, love is waking, <laughs> this is great, love is waking up at 5 a.m. and going to their house. So it's kind of creepy, right? <laughs> because you want to see their face. Hopefully they know you. <laughs> It's rolling over years from now and seeing their stupid, perfect face sound asleep and saying, dang, I want it life. That's a quote. So, <laughs> definition of love. Um, and you know what? These are, these are the answers you'd expect, right? Uh, so then the next person said, love is uh, when a person is feeling so addicted to another person and not feeling like leaving until he or she says, I love you. I'm not going to leave until you say, I love you. That's a literal answer, word for word. Not leaving, okay, until you say, I love you. Um, love is fighting no matter what you're up against. Love is going the distance, going through hell and staying strong so you can be with that person. And then finally, love is the powerful force that bends our world toward goodness, right? So there's all the answers. And, and I'm not making fun. Like, I mean, this is, this is the world we live in, right? This is the reflection. And what's so important about all that is that it's silly and it's fun to laugh at. And we as Christians, we kind of know there's more to love. And, you know, you know where I'm going with this. But it's, it's kind of interesting that this is the reflection of what love in culture looks like when somebody says it back. This is rom-com love. This is REO Speedwagon hand-holding love. This is, this is what love is. It's a, it's a feeling. It's, you know, woo. You know, that's what love is. Uh, but love is so much more than that. And, and let's hear it from Jesus. Let's actually go a little bit further. So love has a language problem. Love also has a huge vocabulary problem. And uh, I want to talk to you about that for a second. There are three words for love in the Hebrew language. If you didn't know this, the Old Testament was actually written in a language called Hebrew, and the Hebrews had three different words for it. First one was ahava, which means an intimate love. It's the kind of love that you would have for your closest friends and family, for maybe your spouse. You would have ahava love for them. Like, it's a deep, affectionate love. It's an intimate love. The next kind of love in Hebrew is chesed, and that means loving kindness or steadfast love. That's the love that doesn't budge. That's the love that is stubborn. That's the love that will stop at nothing to, to just sacrificially love someone else. So it's a steadfast love. It's loving kindness. And then finally in Hebrew, there's this word called reut, and it's also love. The, this is the love of a friend or a companion. Like, I love all of you guys. I reut all of you guys. You're my friends. You're my companions. I do life with you. I hang out with you guys. It's kind of the love that says, I got your back. You know what I mean? Like, if you're in trouble, you can call me. You got my number. You can, you can rely on me. Like, that's the kind of love that reut is. And so there's these three Hebrew words for love in the Old Testament. But then when you get to the New Testament, which was written in Greek, I mean, it blows up, and there's way more than that. Let me just briefly go over them, but it's crazy. Love has this vocabulary problem because in the Bible, there's all these layers and nuances to love. I want to tell you about it. First of all, there's phileo. In, in the Greek, phileo love is 
brotherly love, brotherly, sisterly love. It's the kind of, so, you know, the city Philadelphia, it's the city of brotherly love. It comes from the Greek word phileo and delphia, or delphi, which is the city. So phileo, delphia is the city of brotherly love. And it's the kind of affectionate love that you would have with a brother or a sister, a friend, somebody that you really like. You love to hang out with them. They're the kind of person that you would want to go and have a cup of coffee with and hang out with them and sit on a couch and just be a friend with this person. You phileo this person. Now, there's another kind of love in the Greek. It's called eros. It's eros. You get the word erotic love in there, and that's the passionate love. That's a physical love. It's, it comes deep from within, right? It's the fun love. I don't need to go into it too much further, but you probably know what I'm talking about, right? Think a Barry White song. That's eros love in the Greek, and then you have in the Greek this idea of agape love. Agape is unconditional, will stop at nothing, do everything, love. It's, uh, it, the, the best definition, I think, comes from C.S. Lewis who says, agape love is to will the good of another. Think about that for a second. It's to will yourself toward the good of another person. So in other words, uh, when you agape love somebody, you're setting aside your own desire and your will becomes to do the good and to move toward the good of someone else, to agape love them. There's another kind of love in the Greek called storge love, which is parental love. It's kind of an affectionate love of a parent for a child. It's kind of like the eater of vegetables because I storge you love. And it can be paternalistic. It could be a love of a professor for his students. It could be a love of um, somebody that in, a, in an instructor position for his classmates, a storge love. There's also this kind of ludus love. It, the word ludicrous comes from this. And ludus love is a casual love. It's, a, it's actually more of like the love of sort of like Playful love, flirting, elbowing somebody, tossing your hair. It's a, it's a playful love. Many of you guys are experts at ludus love. You didn't know that, but you're ludicrous, completely ludicrous. <laughs> and so the Greeks have words for it all the time. There's all these nuances. Ludus, you know, a starge, agape. There's another one called pragma. I love pragma. It's not very common, but it is in the New Testament. And pragma love is very practical love. It's founded on reason. It's founded on a sense of duty. So pragma love is like love of country. Anybody here, like, you're a patriot, you love your country, you have pragma love, pragma love. All of these words are in the New Testament, and the Old Testament has, of course, ahava, chesed, and reut, and so there's all of these different nuances, and what makes them really powerful is when you understand them, you can get to, like, Ephesians 5.25, which says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, but when you know that it says agape, you know that it says, husbands unconditionally love to will the good of your wife because Christ, he unconditionally loved you for your good, right? And, and so you, you, it's agape. Agape your wives as Christ agape is the church. And all of these things. In Hebrew, we've got three. In Greek, we've got all these. And in English, we have love. <laughs> we love. That's all we have. We have love. And we have to translate all of those words as love. And, and, and that's just the way it is. We have a vocabulary problem, but there is a nuance. There's a richness in what the biblical point of view of love is. is multifaceted and very, very powerful. Not only do we have a vocabulary problem, not only do we have a definition problem in regards to love, we have a capacity problem. And this is perhaps the biggest one and where I want to continue for the rest of the day on this issue of capacity 
Our culture is obsessed with love. It's everywhere. You guys, love is ubiquitous, isn't it? I mean, you turn on the TV, it's love, love, love. It's all about community and connection and love and feelings and, and rom-coms and, and uh, hookups and, and all kinds of reality TV stuff that love is involved in. And it's, it's everywhere. You can't escape it. If you've read any poetry, if you've seen any movies, if you've listened to any music, if you've ever written any poetry, chances are... It's coming from a place trying to understand and communicate love. And that's a good thing, by the way. That's not a criticism. It's a good thing. And yet, with all of this cultural immersion, we still slaughter each other on planet Earth. We still battle racism. We still lead with anger over love. Like in the 20th century 100 million humans killed, or 100 million humans were killed by other humans. That, that is not a society, that is not a world that understands love. Like the capacity problem is that we say it, we sing about it, we celebrate it, but it, the way that we live it out, it's, it's definitely not in our capacity to fully understand it or live it out in the way that Jesus did. And that's what make G- makes Jesus so completely revolutionary because Jesus came and he redefines love. He redefines it. He lives it out in a, in a, in a powerful way. And so I want to talk about three ways that he does that. Now, first of all, he, 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 he shows us that love is efficacious. By the way, that's kind of a big word, and I got that from my wife because she's in the pharmaceutical industry, and she used it one time to describe the effect of a drug on the body or of, a, of, of the body on a drug. Not illegal drugs, by the way. She, again, she's in the pharma industry, and she's, uh, but she's, she says it's efficacious, like she used this word. And I've always grabbed onto that because I think it really encapsulates what love is. The, the love of God, if you look at John 3.16, the big end zone verse, you know, that everybody holds up, at a football game, it's for God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten son. The most important thing to God, he gave it as an act of love. So it's efficacious. It did something. It affected something. In fact, it had the biggest effect in the history of the universe because you're sitting here today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, because God loved you first, because he laid down his life for you, It's an efficacious, active love. It's not passive. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has everything to do with outcomes. Love is an active love. John 15, verse 12 says, This is my commandment. My commandment that you love one another, that I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. He gives. He lays down. He does something. You know, when marriages run into trouble and you get two people that say, I no longer love this other person. What you'll find out in, you know, 99% of the time, it's a problem whereby one person stopped doing something. One person checked out. And then the other person in retaliation, they checked out and they're not doing anything. And you know what they all do? They have this thing in common where they're waiting for the feelings to return. They're literally waiting for a moment where I feel a rebirth of that love. And yet there's no action going on. There's no rekindling. There's no laying down your life, no setting aside of your will. And it's a misunderstanding fundamentally of that Jesus love, that love that sent Jesus to the cross. So love is active. It's efficacious. Love is also sacrificial. It's sacrificial. Back to 1 Corinthians 13, picking it up again in verse 4. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. 
It doesn't insist on its own way. No, it doesn't. It doesn't stand up and demand my rights and demand to be heard. It isn't irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with what? The truth. It's happy for the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It is sacrificial. Love is willing to experience pain for the sake of the other person. Love is willing to lay down uh, the rights to your own life and your own comfort and safety and security for the benefit of someone else. That's what Jesus did, and he modeled that for us on the cross. Love is active. It's sacrificial. Love is a mission. 1 John 4, 7, Jesus ties this in, and he says the best way to understand love is to love one another. Here's what he says in 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone that loves has been born of God and knows God. And then this one is kind of hard to hear, but hear it, please, as if you've heard it for the very first time. Anyone that doesn't love does not know God. I'm sorry, but I mean, if you're the kind of person that you live your life because you're hating some other group of people, individuals, if you're that person that you are filled with hate, you do not understand God because you don't know God. God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world. Again, Jesus was the greatest act of love in human history so that we might live through him, live through him. This is love, not that we have loved God, but he has first loved us. We're, we don't have a capacity to love. Our capacity is really to hate one another. Our capacity is really to seek our own best interests. I want to win at all costs over you. I want to seek myself above you. That's my inclination. But the gospel says Jesus gave his life. He laid it down for us no greater Love has any man than this that he lays down his life for his friend. It's sacrificial, efficacious, missional love. I want to leave with this, like, I want to close with this one big thought. This is going to be a tough one to hear. But I think some of us, when we say we love God, we've got it all wrong. Because what we're saying is we're feeling something at that time, right? It's kind of like saying, you know, when you first meet somebody, well, I love so-and-so. Because it means you feel good about them. Like, that's, that's that kind of Eros love, maybe a little bit of phileo love mixed into it. I mean, I don't know what it is. It's fun, though, right? I mean, it's like, it's honeymoon love, right? But at some point, the sacrificial love has to kick in. When we talk about loving God, first of all, remember one thing. It's a commandment. Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. If you don't do that, then you might as well not obey the rest of them because this is the most important commandment. If you don't get that right, then you don't understand the rest of it. It's basically like you've just cut the Bible in two and you've, you've totally dismembered it. You've got to love Jesus. And what does that mean? I found a great definition. Again, I love to take credit for this, but it's a great definition of what it means to love God. And it will fly in the face of, I think, this idea and I want to sort of divorce it from this emotional love that we have. Like, oh, I feel, oh man, I feel love for Jesus. You know, these people just walk around all the time. I feel in love for Jesus today. I just feel really close to Jesus. Here, here's what I think love is. Love is relentless devotion. It's relentless devotion. 
That's the love of God for us. That is a great definition because it implies that we, because we love God, we do what he says. We, we, because we love God, we obey his commandments. And what it is, is like, again, God gives us analogies in the world. And one of the greatest is a love for a father, for his son, a love for a mother, for her child. And, and so like with my son, we just went on this little vacation and I love my little kid. But let's say that, you know, he disobeys me. Out of love for my son, I'm going to want to correct him, right? Because I love him. But let's say that disobedience over time becomes open rebellion. And my son grows up and he becomes that type of a kid where he just goes off and does whatever he wants. He, he pays no regard to me whatsoever. He, he doesn't listen to my wisdom. He doesn't listen to what I ask him to do. Not only is he not cleaning up my, his room like I ask him to, but let's just say he goes out and counters my own best interests over and over and over again. You know what? He comes home and he says, Dad, I love you. And I'm going to say to him, what? Does it feel like you do? It doesn't seem like you really do love me. Now, let's just say that that blows up over time and that, you know, he's off living his own life completely separate from me. And he doesn't even, I mean, he gives me some thought, but it's more like just a feeling of what life used to be like as on a camping trip with dad. And it's more of a memory, but it's, I'm holding on to something. He's holding on to something in his past, but he doesn't really ever call me and he never sends me a note. He doesn't show up for family functions. He's never there for Christmas. He's doing his own life, living life his own way. And I'm a brokenhearted, like righteous father who loves his own son. And then he shows up one day and he gives me a big hug and he says, Daddy, I love you. I mean, I'll be blown away in my emotion for him. I don't know how I would react, but I would say this, that it really hasn't felt like you've been living a life of love for me. Because why? Because he has not been devoted to me. Part of devotion is you get, you want to do the right thing for the thing, for the person that you love. Like this is the, like the best thing, guys, um, gals, if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody, relentless devotion is, a, is like the pinnacle of it, right? It means devoted to the other person, regardless of your own interests. This is the love that you need to have for God, relentless devotion. I don't know where you're at, but sometimes I kind of operate on the emotional side. And today I'm challenging you in your love for Jesus Christ, not to make it uh, uh, an issue of religiosity or to try to create um, more commandments for you to live on, but are you truly devoted to God? Here, here's the, the question that I'm going to ask you is, does your love for God, if you do love him, you proclaim to love him, does it affect, does it affect the way you talk? Does it affect the way you interact with people? Does it affect the way you see creation? Does it affect the way that you live your life? Maybe manage your finances. Does it affect the way that you give? Does it affect the way that you interact with people? Like, what is, what is the effect of this love that you proclaim? Or is it just words? Is it just an emotional response? And what I want to challenge you today is to take it a little bit deeper and ask yourself, does this match does this match my proclamation of love for Jesus? I gotta be honest with you, like I'm sitting in, in those seats with you and if I'm listening to this message, sometimes the answer is a little dismal for me. Like, wow, I'm, I'm good about saying I love Jesus, but am I relentlessly devoted to him? So maturity and discipleship begins with, what do I do in response to this love that I have? How far do I go, Jesus? I will do anything for you. I will say anything. I will, I will obey you. I will sacrificially obey you. God, I will run after you. And if you think that this is a very like, 
you know, New Testament concept. Look at the life of David. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. But if you look at Psalm 19, David says that the law of the Lord is, is like a delight in his soul. He says that it's sweeter than the honey dripping from a honeycomb. Like, it is amazing. He says, he said, I love the law of God. Like, I love following God. I love doing what he wants me to do. I love doing what he asks me to do. I love, I love serving him. I love laying down my best interests and my best talents and giving it to him. I love acting crazy for God. I love relentlessly being devoted to God. That was David. David wasn't just a guy who said, you know, I just feel a lot of love for God and I'm going to go do whatever I want, living my life, doing my thing. So do you see the difference there? This is, this is the big challenge. What is, when you work it out, you work out all the nuances, love as a capacity problem, love as a definition problem, and love as, you know, all, all of those things, when you boil it all down, it's relentless devotion. And, and, and what is that? Is that what it looks like for you? In just this moment, I want to pray for you. I want to pray a, a, a strong prayer for all of us here that we realign that in the signal-to-noise ratio becomes less and less as we begin to hear the voice of Jesus. I love you. I gave it all for you. I laid it all down for you because I love you. Will you follow me? Will you walk after me? Will you, first of all, do you know how much Jesus loves you? If you don't, then come to the cross. Go to the cross and see it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus, every day, teach us, model for us, powerfully grab a hold of each one of us and, and ask us, Lord, to follow that love that you modeled relentlessly. If there's somebody in this room and, and maybe they honestly they're saying, I, I want to love you, but God, they don't know you. I pray that you would invade their hearts, that they would walk away from here changed, transformed, renewed, a new person. Absolutely, the old person can die and the new person can be made alive and they can feel love like they've never felt before. And there's nothing wrong with feeling it. There's nothing wrong with sensing it. There's nothing wrong with like, the feeling of love, but then God to walk away from that and based on that love, like just to, to follow hard after you, to, to want to know you more, to seek after you more. Now, if there's a Christian here today, God, that's like many of us, I think are, that, that we've professed our love for you, but we haven't talked to you in a while. We haven't opened up your word. We haven't like sought after you. Um, Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to just admit it today to lay that down, to repent, which means to turn from it, and to follow hard after you because we love you, Jesus. Not just in words, but in deeds. Not just giving you lip service, but because we are radically and relentlessly devoted to you. In your name we pray, amen.